This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with stars. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul and Luminosity of the Ordinary. Good morning. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing just great, Tonio. Just got back from my doctor of oriental medicine and always a pleasure to see him. So we're already in the healing mode. That's good to hear. Yes. <laughs> so how's your healing going? Um, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm a little mystified by this whole thing. I, I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I don't think we're supposed to have figured anything out around any of this. I think we're supposed to let go into it and just let our own inner natural way of healing or being just take over. Yeah, I was just talking to my doctor about that very thing, Tonya, and the way that we were describing it was like, how do I just get myself out of the way? Yeah, exactly. And because you know, we've been conditioned by our society and our parents and teachers and school and everything in all these myriad entangled ways of getting in our own way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's our culture and particularly a culture that is getting us. I mean, we are literally programmed to focus on the external rather than the internal. And I guess this is maybe like my propensity wanna to, to play with little kids because in general, they just haven't been programmed yet. And there's that sense of wonder and curiosity that is so natural in all, all beings that uh, is still there to be able to play with. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with you. I, I gravitate towards being around kids, animals, plants, nature, yes. anything but most adults. <laughs> I was talking to a friend recently and she had a similar sort of experience and we can get into childhood stuff but as you know I told her I said I just simply feel more comfortable 
of away from, and it's not like I'm uncomfortable, you know, when I'm around, like I was at a big, big dance last night, there are 500 people there, we had a great time, but I feel safer in the woods, to be perfectly honest, and, and but that's very personal in the sense that, and I don't know, because you grew up in the streets of New York City, but you've gotten so accustomed to the woods that you clearly have learned something new, because for me, the, the family thing and growing up, none of that was really happening at home in terms of nurturing, in terms of, you know, being seen or heard, any of that sort of stuff. And it was, of course, still that generation where it was like they would want us just to go outside and get lost. And I learned probably my greatest family is being in nature and how much I learned from a pragmatic sense has been invaluable. But how, how has that turned out for you? Because you went from very urban to completely rural. Well, imagine this. A kid growing up on the concrete streets of New York City in a family, a very dysfunctional family that was unsafe, traumatizing, psychologically and emotionally traumatizing, and then having it as an alternative to that, the kind of mean streets of New York City where I was even less safe. <laughs> so you went from bad to worse. Well, I wouldn't say bad to worse, but bad to bad or or unsafe to unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, I think unsafe to unsafe, uncomfortable to uncomfortable until we finally moved up here to Vermont. And then it was like heaven because like getting to sit down on a log or a tree stump and just sit there and experience the peace and quiet and what resides in that peace and quiet, this like infinite depth that my first memory of that clearly was when I was in high school. And it was so deeply and profoundly nourishing mm. in that way as this like nourishment of the soul of being in that still quiet place where there's nothing separating us from that direct experience. Yeah. And, and let me ask you this question. You know, there's that line that Rumi has, which I have in the book somewhere, which is, you know, the wound is a place where the light enters. And so if you were to consider, you know, the environment that you grew up in down in New York City, that there had to be a way that you figured out how to survive that. Otherwise, you would have been annihilated. What was the what was the thing that you learned, which ended up being like in that case, you know, where the light entered so that you could survive? I don't know. I think I was too young to know anything about that in any outer way. I think I think that I was just guided and protected, you know, kept alive and kept safe, you know, to whatever degree I was so that eventually I would come to recognize and integrate the light that would eventually and continually creep in through all of the <laughs> all of the the many many cracks <laughs> <laughs> and that's really quite interesting uh, that in other words it was almost like a blessing in a sense that was keeping you protected through what one might call the darkness uh, but I, I guess what I'm curious is, did you feel like any sense of, for instance, your your instincts, your intuition 
were almost heightened with that kind of like like having to be aware in in a pretty tough environment where you grew up oh absolutely i mean i had that spidey sense at home with my parents and i definitely had it in spades on the streets like i had metaphorical antenna up zooming ahead like half a block away picking up any potential danger yeah so so that's really to me an incredible gift in a sense um but it must have felt like a kind of relief uh, you know an amazing relief once you got up to Vermont like I don't have to do that all the time absolutely um right the 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 operative word is all the time there were still yeah. like when I was in high school there were still nasty kids who who loved to pick on people like me or or just like to pick on anybody who happened to be in front of them at the moment so there was no escape from all of that but you know looking back and overall, life is a ride. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say, would you have any regrets in terms of how things have played out? Or, because uh, you know, this is always interesting for me to see if someone is still, you know, operating from, I don't know, like sort of behind the eight ball or just getting on top of it in a sense and saying like, well, but I ended up learning all these things. Like in my case, with all that thing of being out in nature, it was between intuition and common sense. I couldn't be more grateful. Um, at the same time, there's a certain sadness and a grieving as far as the, um, the connections in a family that didn't take place. But on the other hand, I got this other gift that has been so invaluable in my adult life. Yeah, that's a great question. and. I definitely am grateful for everything that's happened because it got me to where I am now. And I'm pretty happy with where I am now. Um, I have no complaints for the most part. I do have, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, if I look or feel in my body, there, there are lesser things to complain about if I was so inclined, but uh, I'm not, I'm not particularly inclined to complain about them. I just notice them. And uh, being a slow learner that I am, though, though I'll say a steady slow learner, you know, the, the old thing about the slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> and yeah. at the same time, you can lose every battle and still win the proverbial war kind of well, a thing. It seems to me, Todio, that you have really developed an incredible, you know, sort of wealth of wisdom along the way that... When I when I think of the conversation you had about the Tao Te Ching not too long ago with that educator, I think he was from Chicago, it was really this wonderful conversation between both of you and how much knowledge and, you know, it isn't just talking about the, the Tao Te Ching itself, but there's something very pragmatic underneath all of that and really quite simple and you're know, living in the culture that we live in now with its distractions and wanting to make things very complicated, it can feel so far away from what the Tao represents and, you know, the, the beautiful simplicity that comes with that. And, you know, that in, in a sense, like what we were talking about from the very beginning, how do we keep getting out of the way of ourselves in order to participate in this larger thing with ease and, and not with complication? Yeah, well, that's what my whole life has been working on, 
I mean, that's what I've been doing my entire life is, is working to get there. And there's a line from this wonderful book that you just sent me, The Tao of Healing. Speaking of the Tao Te Ching, this is a, another version of the Tao Te Ching, a really exquisitely beautiful version. And there's a line that says, healing is merely our separation from God made whole. Yes. Yes. Isn't that gorgeous? And I guess we should let the let's let the listener know right from the outset. Uh, you know, dear Tonio, my my across the country brother, um, in a sense, has uh, you know got in touch with me and just wondering what uh, what I was chewing on lately. And I told him I've been reading Gabor Mate's book, uh, the the myth of normal, and then that got me. You know, and there's it's really a lot of it is about healing. I mean, the subtitle is trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. And then I got over to this other book I had around for a while, The Tao of Healing, and then um, sent a copy over to Tonio, and that's where we are as far as a starting point with this conversation. Yeah, I love Gabor Mate's work, and I especially love this The Tao of Healing book. And Gabor Mate's approach to this is interesting in that he's obviously had a, a deeply traumatic life as a foundation from which he has spent his life studying this and working on himself and and deeply understanding all of these dynamics, even more so than me or or many of the people that I know who feel like, you know, driven to desperation from the early challenges of our life. And he speaks, I haven't read the book, but I've listened to numerous talks of his and the way he speaks of it is just so profound and revealing. I mean, his insight into this is so clear. His language is so, so revealing about all of these dynamics. And in a strange sort of way, makes a kind of safe space within which to be with all of this, you know, trauma-related stuff. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, it does. And and the thing that I like, and this is just to add on to what you just said about his work, there's something very pragmatic, which I really like because and there's, I can't remember, I, I can go into one of those poems from the Tao of Healing, which talks about, you know, the, the complication of like modern medicine and, you know, it gets away from the simple. And once you get away from the simple, then you get kind of lost very quickly. That his pragmatic look at whether it's autoimmune diseases, whether it's people with uh, cancers, you know, things like that, that he'll really get down into, so what were the traumas that took place to people? And the trauma itself isn't the actual cause, it's what is it that we decided in relation to that trauma that then can become a belief system that can eventually turn into, and this is not to say that, for instance, my inability for say to say no is going to be the cause of a cancer, but as Candace Pert, I think we talked about that quote, you know, she says that there is always a psychosomatic component of every illness that's happening with us short of like getting in a car wreck or something like that. And that's what we really need to go after. And this is not to say that, you know, to disparage Western medicine and the treatments that they have to offer, but 
you know, he has many examples in this book of, you know, individual people going through whatever insanity. And it wasn't until they did a process of what he calls self-retrieval, which was really, I love how he uses that term, self-retrieval. How do we get back to becoming who we are if, if we ever even knew that from the beginning? Exactly. And that's what's so great about his work is that he understands that essential dynamic, that it's about the primal separation from ourselves and and understanding how that primal separation then gets exacerbated by being brought up by people and educated by people who are still separated from themselves. And yeah, it really boils down to the relationship that we have with ourselves as a result of the experiences we've had. You know, have we found a way to see through the damage or to actually see the light that seeps through the cracks, or are we still just seeing and feeling the cracks? And and it's like how how we see ourselves and relate to ourselves in response to what we're experiencing. You know, if we're feeling like a victim or experiencing lack and separation, then we have a relationship with ourselves and the world around us based on on those things. And from that, you know, things like autoimmune diseases and other diseases can arise out of those senses of dis-ease. You know, yes. Yes. Dis, dis-ease is like the precursor. Dis-ease is, is like the feeling sense that we have about what's going on inside of us. And if we don't find a way to resolve it or make peace with it or forgive it or forgive ourselves for having it and holding on to it, then eventually it is very likely to solidify into quote unquote disease. Yes, that's that's exactly right. So it's fascinating in, in Gabor's book, and and you know, I sent you a number of quotes, and I think you got a sense. He goes over, you know, the toxicities in our culture. And of course, you know, in, in my own book, you know, I I try to make a distinction between what I call the ego-centered world and the soul-centered world. In the ego-centered world, which is very much where we live, uh, is a world that is focused externally and is obsessed with things like identity and celebrity and all that kind of stuff. But once we can get out of the ego-centered world, there's no real reason to have to spend a lot of time there thinking and talking about it. But get into the soul-centered world, that's where the real healing. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, this whole topic, you know, this strange, mysterious thing called healing. You know, that we don't really have a gauge to say, I mean, we can observe, say, for instance, like a cut is healing and we can see there's a scab and all that taking place. But, you know, with some of these other things that, you know, there is this this long, slow, interesting process that takes place. And I'm always asking myself, like there's the end of that Tony Hoagland poem where he talks basically about what is it I still need to learn in terms of becoming more of who I am? Yeah, healing is a mysterious thing. Like when you see a scab healing, that's that's on the surface and and that's something you can actually see, but most of the stuff that we're dealing with is not visible. Most of it exists on the emotional and psychic level. And because we weren't brought up to really connect with things that we can't see, 
it's really hard to understand what healing really is. And I think it's why there's so much illness and disease and disease in our culture, because we have a very disconnected relationship with the whole notion of healing. And I still struggle with the notion of healing. Like I still get caught up in thinking I have to do something to heal or that I need to heal something from the perspective of me as being an active agent in the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's part of that ego-centered world too, which is we have been really kind of programmed as a culture that everything needs to be fixed. And, and how do we participate in that fixing? And this, and what you were just talking to really leads to another Candace Pert quote, which is, unless we can measure something, science won't concede it exists, which is why science refuses to deal with such nothings as the emotions, the mind, the soul, or the spirit, end quote. So when I think of, for instance, because I, I know that both you and I have gone through, and probably I think most people go through this in the course of a lifetime, like a broken heart. And of course, that's the poetic you know, term for it. But how does one heal a broken heart? Is it an active process? Is it a silent process? Is it, you know, I, I remember my mother once telling me after my father, her husband had died, she said her solution for healing was just to stay busy. And I would try to explain to her, I said, well, staying busy is an interesting, you know, strategy. It's really just a diversion. But I said, ultimately, there's grieving. And it seems like the real healing in that case is going to be grief. But as to whether one fully heals certain things, I'm not sure that that's even necessary because I think there's something quite lovely you know, we grieve to the extent that we love. Do I want to forget the memory of, of my father, for instance, and well, whether it's good or bad or any of those things? He was very much a part of my life, and that's just literally part of my DNA. Yeah, I think ultimately, and very simply, it always seems to boil down to just being with whatever is in this moment. Yes. You know, whether you're experiencing joy, which is wonderful, or you're really deeply uncomfortable and perhaps grieving a devastating loss. Uh-huh. And I think this, and this goes to the Tao, but, and also to like Zen Buddhism, which, you know, gets into the whole idea of, well, once we lose judgment and attachment and just get to a place of noticing, just like you were saying, just to be with something, that once we get out of the attachment and the judgment, then a lot of things will fall away very quickly. And then we can just get down to the noticing of, oh, you know, I'm unhappy or, you know, the very things you were just mentioning. And how then, you know, is there anything that needs to happen or do we just keep noticing it? Yeah. And making a home in, in the noticing of that, making a home in the awareness of whatever we're experiencing and experiencing it directly to the point where we're no longer needing to identify things. Because I think in, in the early stages of this, it can be very helpful to identify what we're feeling so that we don't get lost in it or hijacked in it or completely blindsided by it, but eventually recognize the feeling, you know, oh yeah, this simply is, and 
it doesn't have to derail us. It doesn't have to send us for a disconnecting loop, so to speak. Yeah, I think you're you're referring, and I don't know if you're intentionally doing this or not, Tonio, but there's um, the work of Byron Katie. You know how we love to project onto things. And then, you know, those four questions of, you know, is it true? Is it really true? How would you feel if this wasn't taking place? And then, then the ultimate question of now turn it around. And it's like, oh, so now that I can't project it on somebody else, then I have to own this feeling I have going on inside. Now, what do I do with that? Or another way to say that is, if you've been projecting something on on something or somebody else, turn it around so that you're projecting it upon yourself, even while you're still in the stage of not being sure that it's not true what you're seeing, you know, the projection that you're projecting on somebody else. You're just trying out what it looks like or what it feels like to project it upon oneself. Yes, yes, yeah. So I think either you read a poem, like if there's one out of the Tao of healing, I think that would be a nice thing. Or, and I know you probably almost have this memorized, you know, there's Rumi's poem, The Guest House, which is, you know, the sort of anti-modern approach to when things are showing up, like a different perspective. Where would you like to go with this? Um, Rumi's Guest House is essentially what we've been talking about. Yes. So, and I think we've said it pretty well. Um, I was thinking about reading from The Tao of Healing, but in a way... The stuff in the Tao of Healing is so deeply profound that it's almost a showstopper. Like, I was thinking about it after reading the first chapter again. And I was saying, yeah. boy, after reading that, it's like, what else is there to say? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this reminds me of, of one of my teachers when the, the guy, uh, Robert Waterman, who I had for mystery school, and someone asked him about, you know, how he was doing it you know, over the years, he says, I just teach the same thing a different way each time. Exactly. It, it is it, the same thing when I read the Tao of Healing, which was, it was all the same thing in each and every poem, but just done a different way. And it says it all each and every one. And in each moment, we need to relate to things, even if we're teaching the same thing, in each moment, the circumstances are different. We are different. The people we're talking with or in relation with are different. So naturally, how we present has to be done in a different way to adapt to the new situation. And I actually do have a poem that I do want to read. I don't know if I should do it now, but uh, my father went to a reading of a of an old friend of ours, and he got a bunch of poems from him, but I picked this one out because I thought this would be a good one to read. So here we go. Older now. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking lately since now I have skin in the game, being 74 and getting older every day. I've been thinking about nearly everything. And I see people in stages, as they say, and as it were of their lives, stages I've been through. I could say, I see people turning 40 and think they are getting old, think they have crossed a line that they will cross again at 50 when they start to believe the things they played at 40. And I don't know how you handled 60 
I just turned my back. At 70, I turned back around. I don't work anymore. I always wanted to not have to work. I dreamed as a kid of inventing something that would make me rich and independent for the rest of my life. I wouldn't go that far about where I'm at now. But somehow, I have my dream, and I have old age too. The working world from which I come goes on without me. The whole surge through life, from youth to elder, is behind me. In a way, I'm on the outside, but in another, I'm way, way inside. Hmm. That's nice. What what a lovely reflection. You know, it's almost like, you know, the talking about the race of being alive and all these things that are happening to us and then, you know, the decades of when it all takes place and then getting to a point of like, you know, I don't even have to participate in the race so much anymore. I can just sort of look at it all and not even be outside, but actually find, in fact, it's sort of like there's the end of an Anselm hollow poem where he talks about, that's where you'll find me inside working out. <laughs> it's that same thing of that once you get out of that other fast lane, then all of a sudden you're in this whole other completely different place. And it's almost much easier to be noticing because you're not participating in the race. Exactly. And when he's talking about being way inside now, it's like it's way inside in sort of the healing sense that we've been talking about that there's nothing left that needs to be done anymore. Yeah, or fixed and anything like that, that there's, I think, and this is one of the lovely things I find about getting older, there's a savoring that can happen. And, and, and I'm very grateful as much as, you know, I can feel changes happening in my body and certain things. I don't have the flexibility, for instance, I had when I was younger, but there's a wisdom now I can draw upon so that when the crazy stuff does happen, then what gifts do I have in there that I've learned in the process that might help me? Or like in the real healing place, which is, well, what is it I still need to learn now in order to keep navigating whatever it is that's happening. Yeah, and even when we're suffering from some body ache or body dysfunction at this point, we're wise enough to know that we have a choice between focusing on it and focusing on something else or or not focusing on anything. Yeah, all the options. Exactly. I have a friend here in New Mexico, and she teaches African dance and has been teaching down in Santa Fe for over 30 years. Anyhow, it was in the past year that she developed stage two breast cancer. And as Gabor Mate would say, it didn't really just show up out of nowhere. This has been developing for some time. And anyhow, she's never stopped teaching this class and her class rocks hard. And she's going through chemotherapy. She's now wearing a wig. And she has not changed anything in her life with the exception that there's just more loving taking place. She has five grandkids and she spends time with each grandkid in the course of the week. And I think part of it in her case was that she's always kept in touch with her loving so that whatever she's learning now is just, it's going to be easier. And she's also been doing this kind of long-term training so that as this came on, it didn't just like take her out. 
and she had to be on the sidelines for like the next year or two or something like that. She just kept going. And I just am completely in awe of, you know, this human being who has that kind of, what should I call it? Persistence, endurance? I don't know what, Tonio, but I'm just so impressed. To me, it sounds like she's just staying in touch with her compass, you know, her sense of true north and her dancing and her teaching of dancing and rocking it full on is her joy, is the great joy that she gets to not only experience for herself, but also share with others, which just augments that kind of joy. Yeah, and I think there's there's another piece that that you're not aware of that that I need to to explain to you because when we were having lunch after that dance class, I was just talking about, you know, that she and her husband's lives had changed with all these five grandkids, and she said the most touching thing to me where she said, "My life is 5,000 times better." And I was like, "Wow, that is so beautiful." And I think that parallels, you know, Haven Trevino, who wrote The Tao of Healing. This reflects their story because I think they have long since passed away because they had ALS. And from reading this and their introduction, it sounded to me that the disease was something that actually propelled them closer to their own direct experience of themselves and, and connecting with that. So in that magical, mystical, alchemical way, that seems to be like the seed of light that exists even in the heart of darkness, that we can learn and gain so much from apparent misfortunes and apparent tragedies. And often, if we're receptive, we can learn the most from those experiences. Yes. Yes. And I quite agree with you that this gift of, you know, giving a, a different, like a different set of clothes to the Tao Te Ching, that gift alone was incredible. You know, when I first read this years ago, and I thought, wow, somebody who really dropped down and dropped deep into this. You know, all I know is that there was a reprinting, which is what you got, because I have the original, which was, I think, about nine years prior to the reprinting you got. Whether the author was still alive or not, I don't know. And the book doesn't really say. And, you know, there's something quite beautiful about that, too, because it doesn't get into the identity memoir kind of thing. It's really, no, this is about the Tao of healing. Exactly. Exactly. And I had sent you that Tony Hoagland poem, which I mean, speaking of healing, if you want, I'll read it. It's the name of the poem is called Maybe a Hero is Crossing the Mountains. And Tony had pancreatic cancer. And of course, you know, with pancreatic cancer, he pulled off another two or three years of his life. But this is very much, you know, a direct referring to what he was going through during the pancreatic cancer. So here's the poem. They are threading a long needle into the crook of my arm, then pushing it further up the vein as I focus on a corner of the clinic ceiling and try not to think about what is happening. The plump Taiwanese technician, whom I can barely understand, leans closer to the image on the ultrasound, using it to guide the fine gauge tube behind my collarbone, then south, past the lungs into the entrance to the heart. Oh, God. 
I close my eyes and listen to her and her assistant go on about teaching their daughters to drive and try to imagine I'm being held in the arms of a giant blue-headed woman with wings or that I'm skimming at great speed over the waves of the Atlantic. But here in the clinic with its IV poles and catheters, imagination's powers just seem fake and make-believe. And it seems cruel irony to me that my sense of humor was accidentally removed in surgery at the very same moment that every beautiful line I ever memorized by Walt Whitman went right out of my head. So now I proceed without heroes or guides and my two bare feet are two cold facts sticking from under the sheets of the bed. Look, world, I can see that I don't matter anymore. Destroy my fictions if you must. Thread your wires and electric eye through all my sewers, my pipes, until you find the soul. Make it sing or fly or shriek. Grant me at least the feeling that there is something unfinished in me, something I still have to learn from down there, opening its eyes in the dark. That's just such an amazingly rich poem. I mean, there's so much in there. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I don't know. I've never read anything. Of course, I haven't really, you know, I'm, I, you know, I've certainly read thousands and thousands of poems, you know, over a thousand just on the air during my show. But for somebody to get that inside of this particular experience in such a beautiful way, it's just like, and then I just love how he finishes you know, something I still have to learn from down there, opening its eyes in the dark. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's astonishing. Yep. Absolutely astonishing. And, you know, it, it gets into this other interesting idea. And tell me what you think about it. It was a while ago that it was coming up with that, you know, for some people I realized, you know, that. I had to let my own beliefs about like, oh, it's my job to try and fix, you know, whatever, to whatever ability I can, you know, the people around me. And then to get to that place of realizing, you know, for some people, healing's actually on the other side. In other words, that this process of going through and learning or changing, transforming, doing whatever, that when say something has gotten to the point of whether it's ALS or pancreatic cancer, things like that, that I'm not sure it's reversible and that death is really going to be the threshold where that's going to allow the full healing to take place because it just wasn't going to happen here on this side of life. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, at least death is a temporary healing. We end up coming back to finish whatever karmic work we still need to do. You know, if you believe in reincarnation and you believe in a soul's journey to unravel the kind of multidimensional and sort of life of the universe range of karmic entanglements that we have to work with and unravel, and that the soul has this journey that we undertake with our soul. And, you know, from our earthly perspective, we, we see ourselves as these physical and egoic embodiments that seem to be separate from the soul, but 
Well, I should make a, a discernment here, Tonio. I, I don't, what I'm, and, and I'm sorry if I haven't been articulate enough that death itself isn't the healer. Because to me, death from the soul point of view, I love how, uh, you know, how the Dalai Lama put it when someone asked him about death and he just shrugged and said, change of clothes. You know, it just wasn't that big of a deal. Death is just simply, you know, this, this interesting process that our body goes through. I'm talking about the other side. It isn't death itself. It's actually the other side of death, i.e. once the loss of the body, then the healing can take place because whatever energies may exist on the other side, us getting back to that pure soul state, that it's really a very natural case. Then again, I could be completely wrong about that. Yeah, I certainly don't know. But what I was suggesting was that dying may just be a temporary reprieve where we get to reside in that in-between state where we're not burdened by an earthly, you know, three-dimensional physical existence. Oh, and, and, then, and then, yeah, and what you're saying is we still have the karma to deal with whether we have a body or not. Right. Whatever the karma might be that's left yeah. that we that we have to work on and however it is that we need to do that work that we will inevitably choose to continue. You know, we inevitably, according to people who talk about like, you know, when we make quote unquote soul plans or soul contracts for our new lives, that we do it in order to create the most ideal circumstances within which we can learn the lessons that we still need to learn. Yeah. So getting back to Gabor's book, the thing that's interesting is that, you know, he starts kind of from the beginning and, and he's again being very pragmatic where he talks prenatal and the experience of what a child, you know, the ideal experience of what a child, you know, might be going through in the prenatal state and how this is already setting things up. The trauma can already take place you know, prior to birth, you know, when one is still inside the mother's body, then, you know, he doesn't focus exclusively on the traumas, but he really talks about, so what might, for instance, you know, a healthy childhood look like? And I love, I mean, this, this was really very, very profound for me, Tonio, and this is from Dr. Gordon Newfeld, and that's what's lovely about Gabor's book, is he's constantly citing other people, research, Anyhow, here's a quote, and then I'll tell you these four things for human maturation. The quote is, children must feel an invitation to exist in our presence exactly the way they are. That's the end quote. And of course, I never really had that experience when I was growing up. But then he says there are four needs for human maturation. The first is the attachment relationship. Children's deep sense of contact and connection with those responsible for them. Number two, a sense of attachment security that allows the child to rest from the work of earning his right to be who he is and as he is. Three, permission to feel one's emotions, especially grief, anger, sadness, and pain. In other words, the safety to remain vulnerable. And four, the experience of free play in order to mature. Did many of those play out in your own childhood, Tonio? You mean the lack of or or having that? Yeah, yeah. Did any of those happen for you in your childhood? Some of them happened intermittently, like free play was something that I did 
get to enjoy at times mm -hmm. in, in between, you know, the proverbial shit hitting the fan. Yeah. And I have a list of them in front of me. So permission to feel one's emotions, especially grief, anger. Stuff. I don't feel like I had much in the way of permission to feel that. Well, with my mother, I definitely didn't because whenever I expressed any of that, she would one-up me. Whoa. And, and the sense of security attachment, I didn't have that growing up. Yeah, neither and, did I. And a sense of contact and connection. I had a little bit of that intermittently, but for the most part, I definitely didn't feel any consistent security in that, and that I basically had to be on alert for the ever-present danger that was lurking around the corner or in the next moment. Yeah, that sounds really tough when, when you take that inventory, at least as I listen to it, it sounds really tough, you know, to have those sort of, you know, detriments right from the get-go. And, you know, like for me, the first three, zero. Um, the free play was me out in nature. Um, it didn't happen at home until actually once I got a guitar at around age 11. And I sat in my bedroom every day after school and in the summer. I would be in that bedroom by myself exploring guitar. And that's how I became, I guess, you know, a proficient musician. You know, I was learning music off of the records, you know, wearing records out by just playing them over and over and over. It was really a great experience. And that was really kind of a cool free play thing. But it was nothing that was nurtured by my family. In fact, not even a comment from my family as far as whether I was progressing or going backwards or any of that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to look back and I don't feel angry or anything about it. It's just how it was. And I realized there was also a generational thing that was taking place. And so it's more interesting, at least in my life, for me to look at, so how can I make up for the places that didn't get covered growing up? And that's where the challenge is for me, even at this very moment. Yeah, those are our quote unquote crosses to bear in our lives. Yes. And I think yeah. a big thing for me was coming to terms with my mother and coming to realize that she had it even worse than I did growing up. And slowly over the course of my life, coming to realize that she really did the best she could. Yeah, and it's all she had. It's all she had. And I'm sure she wanted to do better, but she just wasn't capable of it in her emotional and psychological state. And when I got to the point where I could really deeply understand that and accept that about her, then it largely liberated me from, I think, the seeds that can actually cause disease. Yes. So, right? So I think that that was a profound gift to myself, as, as well, I'm sure, as it's a gift to her and, and perhaps even her her ancestors, her parents and ancestors, that I was able to make peace with that. And I wasn't doing it out of the kindness or goodness of my heart. 
I mean, I think that kind of compassion and understanding is a natural genesis of maturation, if we're fortunate enough to have that. Well, what's brilliant with what you did here, Tonio, and it's really quite touching for me, is that rather than get stuck in the identity of, you know, my ruined childhood or something like that, and I've done a very similar process where I realized that those things that I was not given to realize, my mother never had those either. And so there's something healthy about that. And there's, as you mentioned, a certain kind of compassion develops in the process. And, you know, almost kind of a silent forgiving. Because I think in one of those poems, and I'm, let me see if I can even find it, that was in the Tao of Healing, where he talks about forgiveness is the fountainhead of love, I think was a term that Haven Trevino used. I love that. Forgiveness is the fountainhead of love. And that's really where so much healing can take place, which is, you know, and here is, you know, this little tangent of noetic balancing that, you know, Gabor has a whole process in his book about how do you, you know, get clear of some of this stuff. And I found it personally very cumbersome, you know, the, the self-forgiveness thing, and you don't have to do it in noetic balancing. Anybody can do this all the time and just say, I forgive myself for believing that, you know, my mother was a horrible person that wanted to make my childhood miserable. And it is astonishing to me, because I do that all the time, how efficient of a process that is and how it keeps cleaning things up. Yeah, and forgiving myself for holding on to any stories that limit me or harm me or debilitate my ability to just fully be. Well, that one you just said right there, Tonio, that's huge. That's like the tsunami wave of forgiveness right there. That's fantastic. And I love the simplicity of that practice. And when you shared that with me from your noetic balancing work, I just took to it like a fish to water. And it's very similar to the great simplicity of the practice of Ho'oponopono. Yes, yes. And I think that simple really is better in a way. I mean, not to get hung up on judgments of things being better or worse than other things, but there's something really wonderful about simplicity and a simple approach to all of this. And forgiveness you know, I guess it depends on how you define forgiveness from an embodied perspective, not not an intellectual perspective, but an actual embodied perspective. Like, are you capable of actually feeling the act of forgiveness in a situation where you have experienced hardship or trauma? Yeah. That's what it boils down to. As a concept, it's worthless. Well, maybe not completely worthless, but it doesn't do much. But when we can embody it, when we actually embody the deep lesson of forgiveness, and again, it comes from an understanding, which comes from experiencing all sides of the fence, so to speak. Yeah, and I, and I think it gets into that personal responsibility thing. And you know, that the saying of, you know, I forgive myself for believing that I'm unworthy, for instance, or unlovable, that kind of thing. There still is something to be said for the fact that 
particularly, and you don't even have to believe in spirituality. You don't have to believe in a greater energy or any of that kind of stuff, but it's still working regardless. But I love, you know, like in the Quran, there's a, a statement that you take one step towards Allah and Allah takes 10 steps towards you. And again, these greater energies are really here. The universe re is really here in our favor. And it's in, in the sense of like unconditional love. And it'll give it, you know, it's like, okay, Rick, you want to be angry? I'll give you what an angry world looks like. And you can have that as your experience. You know, it'll do whichever way we want to go. But I love what you just said in the sense that there still is our personal responsibility of this emotional component. And this is what Gabor gets a lot to in his book, you know, The Myth of Normal. Like, it was fascinating. He had worked, for instance, a lot with women with ALS. And he noticed that pretty consistently, and this is also with people that worked in hospitals as well with the same patients, it was women who never learned to say no. And it was so fascinating because he gets into, again, anecdotal evidence and talking to people and get them to finally free that aspect of themselves that they don't have to always be nice all the time that actually things could change with the ALS. I don't know if there was like full remission. I know there were some cases, there was one, an Asian gal in which her body, and this wasn't ALS, but her body kept locking up to the point where her joints were no longer even functioning and her hands were clenched in fists. And it turned out that she had all these really incredible expectations of herself which was more than her body could handle. And once she started letting go of those expectations, then she actually recovered from this thing that the doctors, Western doctors have basically said, you know, you only have a couple of years to live and you're out of here because there's nothing we know what to do with this thing. So it's fascinating. It gets into, you know, the thing about the noetic thing, it, and I'm not here to promote a particular practice. The idea of noetic is that it's our inner wisdom. And that's what you and I have been talking about this whole conversation and many of our conversations. How do we access that inner wisdom, that inner knowing, whether you want to call it God-given, divine-given knowing that all of us have, you know, from just building our DNA? How do we access that so that these other things, like this fascinating process of healing, might that even be a possibility in our lives? And here's another line from the Tao of Healing that I just yeah. love. It's just one line. Consider this. In this present moment, God chooses to be you. Mm. Isn't that lovely? And doesn't that undercut all of those other concerns? Mm-hmm. And there's another way of looking at the very same thing here, which is that with forgiveness, we get out of our own way, you know, like forgive myself for believing whatever that might be, so that I can be like, from a Buddhist point of view, I can become more of my Buddha nature. You know, I was just reading this poem the other day, which was a Heather McHugh's poem about what he thought. And anyhow, it was about Bruno Giordano. And this is a story about a bunch of poets going to Italy and hanging out and the last night at their dinner, they're talking about, you know, so what about poetry? And so here it is, you know, what's poetry? Is it the fruits and vegetables at the marketplace at 
Campo de Fiori or the statue there. And this is coming from this guy who was really very just kind of pragmatic. And the writer of the poem, the poet says, because I was a glib one, I identified the answer instantly. I didn't have to think. The truth is both. It's both, I blurted out. But that was easy. That was easiest to say. What followed taught me something about difficulty. For underestimated hosts spoke out all of a sudden with a rising passion. And he said, the statue represents Giordano Bruno, brought to be burned in the public square because of his offense against authority, which was to say the church. His crime was his belief. The universe does not revolve around the human being. God is no fixed point or central government, but rather is poured in waves through all things. All things move. And here's a quote. If God is not the soul itself, he is the soul of the soul of the world, end quote. Such was his heresy. The day they brought him forth to die, this is a true story, they feared he might incite the crowd. The man was famous for his eloquence. And so his captors placed upon his face an iron mask in which he could not speak. That is how they burned him. That is how he died. Without a word in front of everyone. Poetry. We'd all put down our forks by now. To listen to the man in gray, he went on softly. Poetry is what he thought but did not say. That so touches me, Tonio, in, in that line. If God is not the soul itself, which means that God is present, this energy is present everywhere, then he is the soul of the soul of the world. And it seems to me the healing that we're talking about, how do we, even if it's only for a, just a glimmer of a second, get in touch with the soul of the soul of the world because that's where the healing, that's where the miracles really do take place. And I really do believe, and this is if you want to put it in, in relation to science, there's a physics behind creating that energy that real change does take place, but it takes place on a level that a lot of us are usually not aware of. I mean, there's a whole energetic world taking place all the time around us. That's just how it is. You know, it's like as Richard Bartlett said, you know, it's all just energy and information. That's all everything is composed of on this planet. And to what extent do we want to pay attention to that? And to what extent do we want to get in the flow or, you know, have a certain amount of discernment so that it's not going to take us out? I mean, I can feel it if I'm ungrounded. And then I have to figure out, okay, I need probably get out back out into nature or like do some exercise or something so I can get grounded again. I figure out the tools that have worked for me in the course of my life. And it keeps me really pretty healthy. And let me ask you, this is kind of a big question in relation to all of this. Like looking back, like in the poem that you read earlier from that Vermont poet, how would you look back in terms of, so how are things like at this moment in your life, how would you say things have worked out? For me? Yeah. I guess they've worked out pretty well. Uh-huh. I mean, there's always things to deal with, and life can be challenging in one moment, but I think overall, it's been a wonderful journey. 
And I get to keep on this journey and I keep learning things. I keep encountering wonderful people, getting to read wonderful books and having wonderful experiences. And I think I'm coming to realize that the experience of that kind of joy and magic exists. You know, the potentiality for that experience exists in every moment, every little moment, every small encounter with anyone we come into contact with or anything like, you know, very well from your experience out in nature, you can have that experience in any moment at anything you encounter. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, to say that, you know, and this is unlike our culture, but you still have held on to what I think is one of the most precious, uh, the precious, which is finding the sacred in the ordinary. And it's always available. And I wouldn't go so far as to say this is what gives me hope. But to me, it's like, this is what keeps it interesting. You know, it's like I do my routine of going and swimming, for instance, every other day. And there are certain days where it's like, oh, God, am I really going to wake up and do this? Or the water's feeling cold today, that kind of thing. But once I get into the motion of it, then, you know, the curiosity starts kicking in again. And I'm like, so how can I even make this even more interesting, you know, because there's a gal who swims next to me and just this past week, she says, Rick, this is our church. And I said, yeah. And I go in there and I keep trying to find new ways of doing things and new ways of experiencing it. And it's just endless. And that to me is like, well, this is the whole point of being alive, isn't it? That we can just keep adding and adding to these experiences and then deepening and deepening whatever it is that we're learning. I'm speaking with Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul and Luminosity of the Ordinary. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. And another way of, of talking about finding the sacred in the ordinary is to realize that there's nothing that's ordinary. Yes. That everything... Yes. Everything is extraordinary. Yes. Because, because everything is new and fresh. It's just the way we choose to see it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that, that's why I think the Buddhists were so brilliant, are so brilliant in terms of this is all about training the mind. And, you know, unfortunately, I think, and this is what Gabor refers to, you know, our culture really trains us to be a certain way. And he's really quite lovely in terms of not disparaging Western medicine because he's a Western doctor himself. But, you know, there is an aspect of Western medicine that wants us to give up our personal responsibility and basically say, you know, whatever med I can take so I don't have to feel these symptoms, then everything's going to be fine. And we've really gotten quite programmed. But then if we get into the sacredness, like going back to Rumi's poem, The Guest House, that these are all guides from beyond. Whatever symptom is going on in your body, it's a guide from beyond. Now what are you going to do with that information? And there we can go back to an earlier thing you said about spirituality. And I think there's a tremendous misunderstanding of what spirituality is in our culture because we're such a, a materialistic culture and we have been trained to see things so mechanistically and to see ourselves and our bodies and our health as being like cars, you know, that you take to the mechanic and you have them perform 
the same exact procedure that works on every other car because it's just a piece of machinery. Whereas in the human experience, it's nothing like that. Well, on the physical level, there is an aspect of that, but there are so many other causative and influencing factors in it that are invisible to the measuring and scientific eye. And that's the realm of the spirit and spirituality is connecting with and learning to understand the language of the unseen and the reality of the unseen, which our culture relegates as being not reality or at best a secondary consideration. Yeah, like Candace Perch said, because it can't be measured. Yeah. Yeah. And I can read just a little bit out of this is the introduction of the Tao of Healing. And I'll just read a little bit because this addresses the very thing you're talking about. Here, the author says, I didn't actually begin writing, however, until I went through a life-changing experience. I was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and given by doctors just a few years to live. When first diagnosed, I had no idea of the journey upon which I was about to embark, a journey which would gradually expose the layers of fear sequestered in my rapidly deteriorating body. As I write, I am in the final stages of the illness. What I have learned and am still learning is this. Beneath our shells of pain and darkness lives a light that transcends description. And all it takes to reunite us is our intention to do so. This light or love is who we truly are. And true healing is remembering this simple truth. For me, this knowledge has been the gift behind the illness, and I am grateful to be able to share some of the facets of this gift with you. That's just so gorgeous, because sometimes I, you know, I, I wonder if, if it really boils down to, you know, like in, in my case, is like, you know, from moment to moment, am I in my loving? Am I out of my loving? You know, to what extent is fear like taking hold? And if I'm out of my loving, then what do I do to get back to my loving? And it's almost boils it down to that. And hopefully I've learned enough that when things come up, that I have a few tools in my bag that can help me get back to that loving. Or guess what? I get to learn some new tools. And that's pretty cool, too. And if all else fails, when we crack and break open, that's where the light gets in. Exactly. And now that you brought that up, you know, that line of roomies about you know, the wound is a place where the light enters you. If you were to translate that in Tonio speak, how would that sound? Okay, the wound is like the portal. The wound is the portal. And if we recognize that the wound is not something to run away from or to not try to fix, but yeah. actually something to dive into like a portal. And that if we have the courage and the orientation, the impulse, the instinct to move in that direction, then on the other side is the mystery, is what's beyond our ability to conceive or imagine anything. And who knows what might be on the other side? We don't know. We don't know if there'll be healing on the other side or wisdom, or maybe it's just the next step in our lives. We, we have no idea what's going to be on the other side. So it's not necessarily going to be a magical thing, but part of the magic is that we just don't know. 
the not knowing. <laughs> you know, I asked my partner this very same question about that quote, you know, the wound is a place where the light enters you. And she had a lovely answer, which was that she said, well, it, it's, you know, whether it's going to be the disease, the broken heart, whatever happens, the depression, all those things that Rumi mentions in the guest house, the light is really, you know, the love enters us because we become more vulnerable through our suffering. I love that. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. You know, like if a deer has been attacked, say by a mountain lion and survives the attack, out in the wild, they just shake it off. I mean, literally, there's a shake and shuddering that takes place and then they just go on. And it's not like they go back, you know, and at night around the campfire, they talk about their experience with the other deer, at least to whatever extent we understand their consciousness. You know, we don't know how it gets processed. For us... There's a whole processing, and that's the whole point of Gabor's book, which was, well, the traumas, whatever happened outside happened, but it's what we decided inside that needs to get looked at. And if you chose love, for instance, as a, as a choice, you're probably going to do okay. If in, say, like my case, I grew up with the whole thing that I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, blah, 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 blah. I had to work with that for years to get to a place of well, how do I just simply learn to love myself? And what is it going to take to do that? You know, there are all these things that I just have to keep figuring out in order to get there because I was of that belief. Like, well, my parents didn't give it to me, therefore I'll never get it. Like, I'm going to be working with a client in another few days and she's already told me that she's, you know, 29 years sober, you know, goes to AA every week. And I was thinking about that interesting thing of how at the beginning of the AA meeting, everybody, you know, tells about how they're an alcoholic. And I don't want to disparage AA because I think it's really helped a lot of people. But, you know, it's like, well, but I don't wake up every morning and say, you know, I'm a recovering 10 year old. Um, and that may be true, actually, in some ways. But I'd rather think of, well, this is where I am now. How do I go to the next place based on where I am at the moment? Yeah, I love that. I'm a recovering three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like I said, that may be true in my case, Tonio, but I don't really want to identify that way. You know, and just when I look at the news and I see so much that has to do with identity. And I'm like, well, imagine if we lived in a culture where, and it's not like you really can teach someone, you know, how to become who they are, but with that, we presented the tools and encouraged whatever it was. Like, isn't it in an Aboriginal culture, I believe, that there's a name that's given to each child, but then there's a certain point, and I think it's around initiation, where they get to choose their own name in line with the gift they have to share with the world so that the person might be a storyteller, for instance, a shaman, anything like that. And it gets to change based on that. We don't seem to provide many tools in terms of helping people to discover who they are. Yeah. And do you ever find yourself needing to forgive yourself for wanting to help or fix somebody else? Because you, from your outside perspective, can see something that they obviously can't? Yeah, absolutely, Tonio. And it's something I still struggle with even right now. There's a situation in my life. You know, there's this part of me, it's, you know, A, forgive myself for believing I need to, you know, bring these insights to somebody else. 
And then the other part of me is like, Rick, just shut up. <laughs> just, just shut up, Rick. And once when my son was about seven or eight years old, I remember telling him, I said, even if I knew the secret of life, that if you're not in a position to hear it, it wouldn't make any difference. And that's what I have to keep reminding myself that, yeah, Rick, you may have some cool insights, whatever, but just shut up. And the real learning, it's just like with me, the real learning is going through the struggle and that aha moment of, oh, now I can really feel what it is that needs to happen here. I recently, because of circumstance that I have been involved in, in my family, I imagined a new cartoon, you know, like the New Yorker cartoons. Yeah. It's a huge herd of horses standing around a little body of water. And of course, the caption is, you can lead a, a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the horses in this represent all of humanity. And they're all drinking? No, they're not drinking. They're just standing there. And <laughs> and here's the thing. You know how some horses, like young horses, they put blinkers on them so that they can only see straight ahead? Yeah. These horses have those blinkers underneath their eyes so they can't see anything below them. <laughs> so they can't see the water. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, here I have two short ones from the Tao of Healing. And this may be a good place to finish up. This is number 48, and this is very short. Science constantly adds to medical knowledge. It gets so complicated. Who can understand it all? Love is very simple. It requires no thought or deed in order to work. Anyone can do it. Master the art of letting love happen. And then here's 49, which flows right with that. Love flows into a clear mind, ripples outward to those in need. Your kind deeds, your loving thoughts travel invisible pathways. Elevate rulers and ruled alike, a world even worlds away. Likewise, your faith may light a thousand cities, endowing both the kindly and the cruel. Strength in one is strength in all, and light in one brings light to all. The truth about yourself is healing. Don't hold anything back. Yeah, this book, The Tao of Healing, is a pure gem. Yeah, I was thinking that I need to send more copies out to friends because it's just loaded with such lovely, lovely stuff. And, you know, it's succinct, it's short. It gets everything, it says it all, and then it's a, always a question of like, okay, now go live it. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking. I was thinking I, I want to buy a bunch of copies and send them to a bunch of people. There was a great story about a guy who had been diagnosed for years and years and years with some kind of mental illness, and he'd been given all these different meds, and he finally meets a doctor in New York City, and here's the quote from the book, 35 years into a psychiatric odyssey, he met a clinician who changed his life with two short sentences. Quote, I don't want you to call what you have a mental illness. You have been injured. So this reverses the whole paradigm of what's happening out there to say, well, rather than looking, you know, it's like, you know, you have a mental illness, we're going to medicate it away. No, you've been injured. 
And what are we going to do in terms of those beliefs that you took on in relation to this injury? And if we can go after that, let's see what happens with how you feel. And that's a spiritual diagnosis by definition, yeah. because the injury is not something that you could see with the naked eye or with an x-ray. Exactly. Or, or with a blood test. Yep. Exactly. In fact, that's, you know, there's another quote that he had. He says, contrary to what I too used to believe, a diagnosis like ADHD or depression or bipolar illness explains nothing. No diagnosis ever does. Diagnoses are abstractions or summaries, sometimes helpful, always incomplete. Yeah. I bring up this point around spirituality because it's a term that I struggle with, that I'm reluctant to use because it's so deeply and fundamentally misunderstood in our culture. And yet, I think it's a term that we should really learn to understand what it really means and what it's pointing to, what it's alluding to, because it's a humongous blind spot in our materialist culture. And I agree with you because there's obviously we've gotten into spiritual materialism, you know, people going to workshops or, you know, I've visited the Dalai Lama, that kind of thing, uh, rather than you have to be in, you know, like go to a, a sacred space, you know, for spirituality to take place. You have to, you know, whatever. It can happen anywhere, anytime. But it really it's something, again, like you said, not measurable, but it's looking inward and seeing these things happening and then what do we decide as far as what, you know, to make changes and how do we go about that? And, and what faith do we have in ourselves, i.e., what faith do we have in our own loving ourselves to pull anything off? And also, it's not about being spiritual, as in you should be more spiritual. Right. It's that we are spiritual beings. It's a part of who we are. Along with our physical bodies, we are spiritual beings as well. And to have a broader, more inclusive perspective, which is essentially what science is all about. And yet many people who have gotten caught under the spell of materialist science have kind of lost sight of. Exactly, exactly. You know, there's um, a book club with my noetic group, and they keep going after, you know, books that Robert Waterman has written. And Robert's quite brilliant. His writing is terrible. I'm just going to be honest about it. And they feel like a certain sense of spirituality, always talking about it. But to me, it, and, and the thing that they keep missing, because every time, you know, I'll go check out this book club and, and see it on Zoom, you know, the first question I always ask is like, who just died? It's like, this isn't spirituality. Nobody is like, it really is like a funeral or something. And it seems to me that in particularly as a noetic practitioner, but even you as a, you know, doing interviews on the radio, things like that, it's really down to our presence and how enlivened are we going to be while we go through this process of being alive. And that's the real spiritual thing, which means I need to be fully in touch with the emotional the psychological, the physical, and the spiritual, all at the same time weaving some kind of fabric that makes me be a fully present human being. Amen, brother.
You know, there was a book that I read recently called The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. And he makes this incredible case. He talks about the birth of the alphabet in Greece. And he said, once we went from oral traditions to a written tradition, that we started objectifying everything. And once we got into the written tradition as well, we lost the language of everything else around us that oral traditions did not lose, i.e. the language of birds, the language of the trees, the language of water, the language of the sky, the language of literally everything living around us. And they all have their own language. And he says the loss that has happened to modern culture is unbelievable because now we're stuck in this language of analysis and being literal about everything. And like going back to the poetry of the Tao Te Ching, that it takes us out of the literal and the analytical. And we can really start getting, even approach the concepts. Because I remember once there was um, a guy who, who was a great teacher who brought Buddhism over from Asia. And it was Stephen Levine. He lived around here. And he said, imagine like the biggest beach you've ever been to. And take one grain of sand off that beach. He says, that is as far as we have come to understand what this larger view of the divinity, God, whatever you want to call it, the great spirit, we can't, because we analytically, we can't even come near it. And that's why we need poetry or music or these other things, these other languages to even get there. Yeah, and... You know, written language is one further step removed from the direct experience of reality. Exactly. And even the spoken word is a step removed from the direct experience of reality, but at least it's a full step closer to it than the written word. Yeah. So like Abram gives an example that there are hunters, I think it was in Papua New Guinea, that knew the language of a particular bird and knew the language that if the bird was, for instance, doing a certain call, it was because there was danger and it was alerting the other birds around. And there was another different call that they had that said that it had just found food and was calling the birds to come and enjoy the food. And so the hunters had learned the language of how to call the birds as if they were calling them for food so they could capture and have their own food. And I was like, wow, how's that for really getting inside these other languages? Yep. That starts to move us to that old notion of magical times when words had power. And yes, yes words do have power in just the way that you just described. Yes. And, you know, as I think in that in his point was in the original alphabet that each of the symbols in particular words like ohm, for instance, uh, you know, that that the breath that that in theory, you know, the divine had used to create this universe that we live in, that was based on a certain sound and that the very power of those sounds really did change things. And we now are at a place where so much of, it's like that loss of the sacred. So many of our words, we can say whatever we want. They don't necessarily have a whole lot of power anymore because we've lost that connection to what that sound had to do in relation to not just our lives, but the whole world. I absolutely love that. The sound that's energized by the power of our spirit. Yes. 
And if we make sounds that are not energized by some inner power, then it's just an empty sound. Yes. And, you know, there's a poem I have in the curriculum, which is um, David Wagner's poem, which is called The Silence of the Stars. And he's talking about um, the Bushmen of the Kalahari and how they can hear the stars singing at night. And that Lawrence Vanderpost, you know, the, the great anthropologist, was down there with them one night. And they said, well, let's go check this out. And so the Bushmen are like, so what do you think? And, you know, they took him away from the fire and put him in this really quiet spot. And he's like, can you hear it now? And he's like, no, I can't hear. And they were like so disappointed. He had lost that language. And I'm sure I don't have that ability either. But these people, there's no question in my mind. They truly were hearing the singing of the stars. And that with all these other languages that we've long since lost, so much information has been lost in terms of how our presence is to be on this planet. And this is obviously why indigenous cultures feel so strongly of like, you're destroying everything. Do not put, you know, an oil line underneath, you know, our water here at Standing Rock or anything like that, because this, all this stuff has information that is going to help us survive. And you keep cutting that information off and believing, I love, what was it? Oh, I know, it was Paula Poundstone I saw recently. She said her flat thing that we now think the flat thing has all the information we could ever possibly need on this planet. And I stand out there in nature and going, that flat thing isn't going to tell me shit. It might tell me <laughs> GPS if I even had reception. But beyond that, I better pay attention to the sky. I better be paying attention to the temperature of the air. I better be paying attention to all that other stuff if I'm going to make it out here, even if it's for a four-hour walk. Yeah. And it's a synesthetic experience. Yes. We're talking about energy and frequency, and we all perceive these things in different ways, depending on who we are and the nature of the way we perceive things. Like some people feel things. Yes. Some, some people see energy and some people hear energy, like those Kalahari Bushmen they grew up in a tradition where they heard the energy of the stars. Yes, exactly. You know, I'm always amazed because I have some noetic practitioners who can actually see the colors of the aura and can actually see like a block in the energy field, like Robert Waterman's quite adept at that. And it's always kind of amazing to me. For me, it's all feeling. And that's yeah. just my body seems to do it. But when they tell me, like, you know, they'll see a certain color and I'm always or like Robert's incredible. He'll be working on someone and he tells a story about some person and doing something, talking about childhood. And all of a sudden to Robert, the image of a little fire truck came up and then they delve into that whole story and how the fire truck got misplaced and all this stuff that happened. And I was like, wow, that's absolutely amazing that he has this other sight which goes into this kind of spiritual psychological terrain that like, how did he even come up with that? It just blows my mind. But it's just the same energy that we all read in different ways. Exactly. You know, I've been doing a certain amount of grieving since the beginning of the year for many reasons, but there's been an ongoing grieving about how much our contemporary culture has cut itself off 
from all these other languages and all these other sensations and all these other things that are out there in the world that make us a greater participant in the world. And maybe that's the place to stop. But tell me if you have some final words to add to that, Tonio. No, I think you just said it beautifully. Brother, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to talk to you. And thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. And it's always wonderful to connect with you. And be well. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul and Luminosity of the Ordinary. Like a star in my vast if I opened my eyes to take a peek To find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility Just then when the hurdy gurdy man came singing songs of love Then when the hurdy gurdy man came singing songs of love And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Histories of ages past Unenlightened shadows cast Down through all eternity The crying of humanity Tis then when the hurdy-gurdy man Comes singing songs of love Then when the hurdy-gurdy man Comes singing songs of love Adigadi, 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 adigadi